You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 85, In the Hands of a Giant. Thanks for joining me. I'd like to start off by thanking everyone who has stepped up and contributed to the Patreon. We are definitely trending in the right direction. If you're still on the fence, it's not too late to pause, go to patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon, and get the rest of the show ad-free. I'd also like to thank those of you who have shared the show with your friends, posted about it on social media, or left a review online. If you are not in a position to donate, that is a good way to help out. Anyway, we left off last time at 5pm on the evening of December 2nd, 1805. I think this is the first episode in the whole run of the show that actually starts at a specific hour of the day. In any case, at the end of last episode, I said the Battle of Austerlitz would reverberate across Europe for the better part of a decade. In this episode, we'll trace some of those ripples and examine the aftermath of the great battle. At 5 p.m. on the evening of Austerlitz, Napoleon had agreed to a ceasefire. But this truce was only for a short duration. In the morning, the war would continue, for the moment at least. Shortly after the battle, Napoleon released a proclamation to his troops, quote, Soldiers, I am pleased with you. On the day of Austerlitz, you lived up to all my expectations of your bravery and boldness. You have adorned your eagles with a glory that shall never die. In less than four hours, an army of 100,000 men, commanded by the emperors of Russia and Austria, has either been cut to pieces or dispersed. Those who escaped your steel drowned in the lakes. Forty standards, including the standards of the Russian Imperial Guard, 120 cannon, 20 generals, more than 30,000 prisoners. These are the results of this day of eternal renown. This much-vaunted infantry, and indeed greater in number, could not withstand your advance. From now on, you have no rivals, no one to fear. See how, in two months, this third coalition has been beaten and unstrung. Peace cannot be far off. But, as I promised to my people before crossing the Rhine, 
I shall not agree to a peace unless it provides us with guarantees and ensures that our allies are compensated. Soldiers, when the French people placed the imperial crown on my head, I entrusted myself to you to keep that crown ever in that high state of glory, which alone could give it value for me. However, at the same time, our enemies sought to destroy and dishonor it, and they wanted to force me to place that iron crown, won by the blood of so many Frenchmen, on the head of one of our cruelest enemies. These were indeed the overweening and senseless schemes, which, on the very anniversary of the day of the coronation of your emperor, you have nullified and confounded. You have taught them the lesson that it is easier to challenge and threaten us than to beat us. Soldiers, when everything required for the happiness and prosperity of our fatherland has been accomplished, I shall bring you back to France. There, you will be the object of my most tender attentions. My people will welcome you back with delight. And all you will have to say is, I was at the Battle of Austerlitz, for them to reply, there goes a brave man. End quote. Obviously, there's a lot of exaggeration there. For starters, the Allied army was nowhere near a 100,000 men, and the battle lasted closer to eight hours than to four hours. But after the way the Grande Armée had performed, I don't think we can blame him for flattering them a little. Napoleon lingered on the battlefield for quite some time. You might think he was savoring the moment, and I'm sure that was part of it. But it seems that he was also tortured by guilt. One of his aides explained, quote, Night surprised him as he walked over the whole line of battle, strewn with the wounded, stopping to speak with every one of them. The morning mist was then falling back in frozen rain, which rendered the night even darker. But, ordering complete silence, the better to hear the groans of his poor maimed soldiers, he would himself hasten to their help, making Yvon and his Mamluk give them brandy out of his own canteen. End quote. Yvon is Dr. Alexandre Urbain Yvon, one of Napoleon's doctors, and the Mamluk was, of course, Rustam Raza, Napoleon's bodyguard and personal valet. This was not an isolated incident. Napoleon often displayed compassion for the wounded. I think it's a window into one of the stranger sides of his character. Contrary to his popular image as a coldly calculating man of war, Bonaparte had a real aversion to bloodshed and often felt remorse about the men he sent to their deaths. This is not to excuse Napoleon. You could argue it's actually more chilling to continue using war as a tool of foreign policy despite having these feelings at the sight of a battlefield. But, as he often did, Napoleon simply lived with the contradiction. His men were not so scrupulous. They lit bonfires, got drunk, and sang long into the night. As they celebrated, many of them sarcastically shouted out the Russian battle cry, Oorah, which seems to make quite an impression on anyone in any era who faces the Russian army. Apparently, this could be heard by the Russian rear guard only a few miles away. It must have been a miserable night for them, exhausted and defeated in the freezing rain, listening to their victorious enemies partying and laughing at them. Of course, there was no time to celebrate for the Grande Armée's medical service. With the coalition army totally shattered, the wounded of both sides were now the responsibility of the French surgeons and orderlies. Carrying torches and candles, they searched among the piles of bodies, 
stripping the winter overcoats off of dead soldiers to use as blankets for the wounded who still lay in the field. Any wounded man who spent the night outside in weather like this was likely to die, and so this slightly grisly solution probably saved many lives. Five days after Austerlitz, they were still finding wounded survivors strewn across the battlefield. This was about as big as battles got in this era, although, as we'll see, the scale of warfare increased as the Napoleonic Wars continued. And of course, only about a hundred years later, during the First World War, a battle this size might not even make the front page of the newspaper. But by 1805 standards, for a modern European army, this was almost the worst defeat imaginable, short of the army actually being forced to surrender. Many in the Allied leadership had gone into this battle with misgivings, but none of them had predicted disaster on this scale. When he was informed that the French had taken the Pratzen Heights, and defeat was probably inevitable, Emperor Alexander of Russia remarked, quote, We are babies in the hands of a giant. End quote. Alexander tried to locate General Kutuzov to begin organizing the retreat, but no one at headquarters knew where the commander of the army had gone, and he could not be found. A good representation of the command and communications problems that had plagued the coalition army all day. So the Russian emperor organized the retreat himself. With that done, he rode out from headquarters towards the rear. He was almost alone, with only his personal doctor and a close aide. But he eventually waved them off, and rode into a small stand of trees. There he dismounted, pulled a handkerchief over his face, and the Emperor of Russia began to cry. Perhaps some of the tears were for the lives of his soldiers, and the future of his country, but some of it must have been personal. Despite the impression you may have gotten from the last few episodes, Alexander was an intelligent man. He was fully capable of understanding his own responsibility. His voice had been among the loudest pushing for an attack, against the advice of many of his generals. And some of his motivations for doing so had been quite selfish. He blamed himself for the disaster, and with good reason. Perhaps Alexander was justified in shedding a few tears, but if we try to look past his army's total defeat on the battlefield, how bad was the coalition's situation, really? The vast majority of the army had survived and managed to avoid capture. 12,000 reinforcements were due to arrive from Russia any day now. The supply and equipment situation was pretty bad, but they did have a sizable number of troops in the field, and the Prussians were due to join the war in less than two weeks, which would add even more soldiers to their ranks and make it easier to re-equip the units that were devastated at Austerlitz. On paper, it wasn't so crazy to imagine that the coalition might keep fighting. However, in practice, hardly anyone in the Allied leadership gave this idea much thought. The army was in such bad shape, and its defeat had been so complete, that everyone at coalition headquarters seemed to assume that they had just lost the war. Apparently, the only person seriously arguing to continue the fight was General Kutuzov, the army's nominal commander. He made a good case that, despite the stunning blow they had just suffered at Austerlitz, the Allies were still in a position to salvage this war, as long as they held their nerve. But no one was interested. 
It seemed that few were capable of holding their nerve. The psychological impact of this unexpected and lopsided defeat was simply too much. Most of the coalition leadership felt the same as Emperor Alexander, like babies in the hands of a giant. And besides, people could tell that Kutuzov was a marked man, already being fashioned into a scapegoat. For the rest of his life, he never admitted fault, and I think if you look at the battle objectively, he bears relatively little blame. But someone had to take responsibility for a disaster on this scale. And for political reasons, that person would not be Emperor Alexander, however much he might have deserved it. And so, Kutuzov would spend the next few years being shuffled around to various unimportant assignments, away from any hint of action. Just as the Napoleonic Wars were beginning to heat up, Russia's best commander would be exiled to serve as a military governor in the most boring backwaters of the empire. Emperor Alexander's chief of staff, the Austrian general Franz von Weirotter, would bear some of the blame as well. After all, he had been the architect of the disastrous Allied battle plan. Weirotter was just 52 years old, but he would be dead in two months. There are not a lot of sources on his life, so it's possible this was simply a coincidence. But you can easily see how the shock and humiliation of defeat may have played a role. The morning after the battle, the ceasefire expired, and Marshal Murat's cavalry corps rode out to pursue the retreating enemy. Napoleon's intelligence had been excellent for the whole campaign, but on this morning, he was misled. The bulk of the French cavalry headed northeast. Some of the coalition army had passed this way, but once they got away from the battlefield, they had all turned southeast, towards Hungary where Archduke Charles's army was still intact and undefeated. The French captured large amounts of equipment, which had been abandoned along the roadside, but didn't find the enemy. The remains of the Russian army escaped to fight another day, but at the cost of almost all their supplies and equipment. That night, Emperor Napoleon of the French slept in the lap of luxury at Austerlitz Castle. Emperor Alexander of Russia slept in a bed of straw in a peasant's cottage. His fine campaign tent had been left on the battlefield. Later in his life, Napoleon would say of Austerlitz, quote, I fought thirty battles like this one, but never one where victory was so pronounced and destiny so finely balanced, end quote. I think that sums it up pretty well. Austerlitz was far from the first battle in which Napoleon used deception to manipulate the enemy into fighting on his terms. We've seen this many times, all the way back to his earliest campaigns. But there aren't many battles where the deception worked quite so well, and on such a grand scale. I don't want to give too much credit to Napoleon's battle plan. As we saw, it was not executed perfectly, and there were moments when it looked like it was going to fail. But, looking at Austerlitz in hindsight, and given the chaos and uncertainty that is part of any battle, it is remarkable that events actually did unfold more or less as Napoleon had planned. Not necessarily in detail or according to his optimistic timetable, but, in broad strokes, he had predicted the course of the battle. Some of this was luck. No one could have predicted just how eagerly the coalition leadership would swallow the deception. But, as always, Napoleon made a lot of his own luck, 
He had been skillful in choosing the ground, and in seeing the situation through the enemy's eyes, and correctly guessing how they would react. And of course, none of this would have been possible if the Grande Armée wasn't capable of operating at near-peak efficiency hundreds of miles from home. Any other army in the world really would have been weak and depleted after two months of constant operations deep in enemy territory. It is easier to convince the enemy of a deception when the truth seems impossible. The French had also enjoyed an intelligence advantage for the entire campaign. We've seen many of Napoleon's subordinates distinguish themselves during this war, but one of the best performances was by a man we haven't had time to mention, who didn't actually wear a uniform. A spy named Karl Schulmeister, who at one point managed to penetrate Austrian headquarters and was actually reading their dispatches and sitting in on their deliberations. There was also the efficiency of the French cavalry, which outclassed the coalition horsemen at almost every turn. We saw this during the battle itself, when the French came out victorious in every cavalry versus cavalry fight. But it was also true before the battle, when the cavalry was carrying out its reconnaissance functions, scouting the enemy army and driving away enemy horsemen trying to do the same thing to the Grande Armée. This might not sound like much, but it meant Napoleon had a much clearer picture of the enemy army than the coalition leaders did of the Grande Armée. And it wasn't only the cavalry. The other branches of service regularly outclassed their coalition enemies. Throughout the campaign, almost every time the men of the Grande Armée met Allied troops on roughly equal terms, the French came out on top. This wasn't due to any innate superiority of the French soldiers, they were simply better trained, better organized, better led, and better motivated. Some of this was the democratic nature of the Revolutionary Army, which we've discussed at length in past episodes. Some of it was good habits, learned from painful experience in the last two wars. And we can't underestimate the benefits of two years of incessant training at the Camp of Boulogne. And we're not just talking about the combat strength of the frontline soldiers. Broadly speaking, the Grande Armée was a much more effective organization. It simply worked better. It was better organized, had more advanced support services, and better communications. All the little things that contribute to an army's success were systematized and prepared in advance. Then you add in the leadership advantage enjoyed by the French, their meritocratic officer corps, which drew from a much bigger pool of recruits than the old regime armies, which were still largely dominated by the aristocracy. When you look at this superior leadership, combined with a superior system of administration, you can begin to understand why, throughout this whole campaign, the French had always seemed to know what they were doing, and the Allies always seemed to be scrambling and improvising. The Grande Armée was organized to wage war on a tremendous scale, at speeds that were previously thought impossible. Its rivals were not. Austerlitz revealed that contrast in stark detail. Before we move on, there is one more thing I would like to note. The War of the Third Coalition had been an absolute triumph for Napoleon. His troops had won almost every battle, including some truly lopsided victories. But all this success did have a cost. 10,000 French casualties at Austerlitz, 5,000 at Durenstein, 4,000 at Caldiero, 
1,000 at Schungrabern, and another 1,000 at Elkingen. The list goes on. Of course, casualties includes prisoners of war and the lightly wounded, so many of these men would return to the ranks, but many would not. Thousands more were killed or maimed in smaller battles and skirmishes. Then there was disease, which killed or disabled thousands whenever the army was on campaign. Then there were the men who said the wrong thing in the wrong tavern and got a knife in the ribs from an angry Bavarian, or died in any of the other hundreds of ways young men far from home get themselves into trouble. These types of losses were sustainable for a country of 30 million with a very young population, at least for the moment. But I think the Grande Armée lost something intangible with these casualties. Veterans of the Wars of the Revolution were replaced by fresh young recruits who had never seen combat. Men who had trained at Boulogne for two years were replaced by men who had only gone through a boot camp of several months. As 1805 turned into 1806, there were still enough of the old veterans around for the vast majority of these fresh replacements to be totally integrated into the efficient system of the Grande Armée. But it begs the question, how many men could Napoleon afford to lose before this incredible army began to decline? Like a vinyl record that can only be played so many times before the sound quality begins to deteriorate or a knife that can only cut so many times before the blade begins to dull. The Grande Armée could only fight in so many campaigns before it began to lose some of its effectiveness. But that was a problem for the future. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When news of the French victory at Austerlitz reached Great Britain, it was not widely believed. The British government knew the truth, but they chose to keep the public in the dark at first, admitting that a great battle had taken place, but refusing to provide any details. So the British press jumped to the conclusion that Bonaparte must have been defeated, and published glowing accounts of a coalition victory. As late as December 21st, nearly three weeks after the battle, the Times of London published an angry editorial denouncing rumors of a French victory as Bonapartist propaganda. Quote, Who is there that can believe that an army of 100,000 men could be so completely annihilated in the course of four short hours? Was there ever a precedent of a battle in which 100,000 men were drawn up on one side, being terminated in so short a space of time? We cannot bring ourselves to attach to it the smallest degree of credit whatsoever. End quote. With the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to laugh at this. There probably was some hubris and chauvinism at the root of this blunder. But, in the defense of the Times, it was hard for basically any member of the British public to believe what had really happened. Every report they had received in the days before the battle had suggested the Grande Armée was a spent force, and the coalition army was nearly unstoppable. 
Most informed people believed an Allied victory was almost a foregone conclusion. Prime Minister William Pitt was under no such illusions. He had a direct report of the battle from a senior British diplomat, a report which was hidden from the public. The Prime Minister received the news in the great spa town of Bath, where he had gone to nurse his fragile health. Pitt was only 46 years old, but he had suffered from poor health all his life. He was prone to stress, and two decades at the highest levels of politics had taken a severe toll on a man who had never been very healthy to begin with. By 1805, Pitt was in near-constant pain from gout, which he self-treated, under the advice of doctors, with port wine. Gout is exacerbated by poor diet, and sugar and alcohol are two of the worst triggers. So, a fortified dessert wine is possibly the worst thing in the world for a person with gout to consume. But, by this stage of his life, Pitt was going through more than a bottle a day. Quite a feat when you keep in mind that port is nearly twice as strong as regular wine. But it wasn't just his gout and remarkable alcohol consumption. Something else was ailing the Prime Minister, something far more serious. His doctors diagnosed him with an excess of liver bile, which is to say that he was very sick, but they didn't really know what was wrong. Modern doctors and historians seem to agree that he had some kind of bleeding ulcer. But despite the Prime Minister's terrible health, the news of Austerlitz demanded he cut his convalescence short and return to the capital as soon as possible. Upon returning to his London study, Pitt gestured to a map of Europe on the wall, and said, quote, Roll up that map. It will not be needed these ten years. End quote. Pitt saw that with his victory at Austerlitz, Napoleon had totally upset the balance of power in Europe. Borders would shift, new countries would rise into being, and old countries would fall into the dustbin of history. Very soon, that map of Europe would look very different. We know the balance of power in Europe had been tipping towards chaos for years now. It had started long before Napoleon ever came to power, and arguably even before the French Revolution. But Pitt saw Austerlitz as a crucial tipping point, beyond which there was no hope of a quick restoration of peace and order. The ailing Prime Minister estimated it would be ten years before the dust settled. He uttered those words nine years and six months before the Battle of Waterloo. People close to Pitt remarked that the news of Austerlitz seemed to worsen his condition. Even as he rushed to organize Britain's diplomatic and military response to the defeat, he seemed increasingly tired and broken. On the night of January 22nd, his health took a turn for the worse. And, at around 4.30 in the morning, January 23, 1806, 46-year-old Prime Minister William Pitt died. Supposedly, his last words were, quote, Oh my country, how I leave my country, end quote. It has been said that William Pitt was the last casualty of Austerlitz. As I hope I've demonstrated, his health was in shambles long before he got news of the battle. But the timing certainly makes you wonder. It was a dark day for Britain, and for all of France's enemies. 
Pitt was a political titan, a man of vision, with tremendous talents and boundless energy, at least until the very end. He was an implacable opponent of the French revolutionaries and of Napoleon, and I think most of them would have admitted that he was a very worthy adversary. One of his greatest domestic adversaries was the great radical Whig leader, Charles James Fox. Fox and Pitt didn't agree on much, and they had crossed swords many times in Parliament and in the press. Still, Fox was stunned when he heard the news. Quote, Impossible. Impossible. One feels as if there was something missing in the world. A chasm. A blank that cannot be filled. End quote. Pitt's friend, the great abolitionist William Wilberforce, eulogized him this way, quote, Mr. Pitt had foibles, and of course, they were not diminished by so long a continuance in office. But, for a clear and comprehensive view of the most complicated subject in all its relations, for that fairness of mind which disposes a man to follow out, and, when overtaken, to recognize the truth, for willingness to give a fair hearing to all, and to listen to the suggestions of men whose understandings he knew to be inferior to his own, for personal purity, impartiality, integrity, and love of his country, I have never known his equal. End quote. Britain was in mourning, but for Napoleon, this was icing on the cake. Pitt was widely known for his vehement hatred of France in general, the revolutionaries in particular, and Bonaparte above all others. Remember, Napoleon was still hoping for an anti-war faction to rise to power in the British Parliament. Pitt's death seemed to bring that dream a little closer. At the very least, France's greatest enemy had lost its wisest and most dynamic leader. Back on the continent, the Habsburg Emperor, Francis II, had not been present for the battle itself, and had only learned of the calamity that had befallen his troops the next morning. He was now faced with a difficult decision. His domain was on its knees. The economic engine of the Habsburg Empire was its western territories, all of which were now occupied by the French. Now that the main Allied army had been defeated at Austerlitz, those territories were likely to stay occupied for the foreseeable future. Francis was left with his least profitable and least populated possessions, where his government's control was weakest. Almost the entire Habsburg military had been destroyed or scattered. The only major organized force still in the field was Archduke Charles's army, which had suffered heavily at the Battle of Caldiero and continued to bleed casualties as it was pursued out of Italy. By this point, the Archduke might have had fewer than 50,000 troops left under his command. In short, the French seemed unstoppable, and the Austrians had little left with which to oppose them. The obvious course of action was to sue for peace, but peace negotiations held their own dangers for Austria. With their entire heartland occupied and their armies practically destroyed, the Habsburgs would be entering talks with basically no leverage. They would be almost totally at Napoleon's mercy, and everyone knew how Bonaparte loved to twist the knife when he held the advantage. But what choice did Francis have? Continued resistance seemed almost impossible. 
On December 5th, Austrian diplomats met with Bonaparte and asked for a ceasefire, pending negotiations for a permanent peace treaty. Napoleon accepted. Austria was out of the coalition. It had been just 58 days since the Grande Armée first made contact with General Mach's forces west of Ulm. It had taken less than two months for Napoleon to destroy most of their military and occupy the richest part of their domain. And all this was achieved before the era of motorized transportation, with the army moving at the speed of a marching soldier. The truce between France and Austria put the remaining Russian forces on Habsburg soil in an awkward position. They were around two weeks' march from the nearest friendly territory and had left behind almost all of their supplies in their desperate retreat from the battlefield. The Austrian government provided food to their former allies, and friendly local civilians chipped in too, but it was barely enough to keep the Russian army from starving. Between exhaustion, malnutrition, and lack of medical supplies, one out of every four Russian soldiers fell sick on the retreat, and many died. A little over a week after the battle, Napoleon returned to Vienna. Once again, he took up residence in the Schönbrunn Palace, the summer residence of the Habsburg emperors. He found the palace crowded with well-wishers, eager to congratulate him on his victory. Of course, many of these same people would have been greeting the emperors Alexander and Francis with the same enthusiasm if Austerlitz had gone the other way. The most interesting member of this crowd was Count Christian von Haugwitz, foreign minister of the Kingdom of Prussia. The last time Haugwitz had come to see Napoleon, he was delivering Prussia's ultimatum, threatening to join the coalition unless France unilaterally withdrew from the war. Everyone on both sides had known this demand would not be met, so this ultimatum had really been more like a declaration of war with a month-long countdown. Obviously, the triumph at Austerlitz and Austria's withdrawal from the war had completely changed the strategic calculus. Everyone knew Prussia had no chance of standing against Napoleon alone, not even temporarily until the Russians were ready to fight again. Haugwitz was there to congratulate Napoleon, and implicitly, to withdraw the ultimatum. You almost have to admire the perfect poor timing of the Prussian threat. If they had delivered it only a few weeks earlier, it could have had a major impact on the course of the war. If they had waited just a few more weeks, it would have been forestalled by Austerlitz and they would have known better than to send it, and would have avoided embarrassing themselves and annoying Napoleon. Instead, the ultimatum was delivered at the perfect wrong moment. Too late to have any influence on events, and too early to be forestalled by Austerlitz. If the Prussians had been deliberately trying to make themselves look weak and incompetent, they could not have done a better job. When Napoleon met with Hogwitz, he couldn't resist forcing him to eat crow, loudly and publicly reminding everyone of Prussia's toothless ultimatum. The Prussians were once again in a difficult diplomatic position, isolated with few friends and no allies among the other great powers, with much larger and more powerful rivals right on their border. After the way Prussia had acted, Bonaparte couldn't resist rubbing the Count's face in his country's misfortune. 
Napoleon knew his diplomatic hand had never been stronger. It would have been very easy for him to make the Prussians pay for all their foreign policy blunders of the past year. But, fortunately for the Prussians, Bonaparte was not interested in punishing them, but in winning their friendship. You might remember from past episodes that this dance between France and Prussia had been going on for quite some time. France controlled Hanover, a rich, well-populated, German-speaking province right on the border of Prussian territory. The Prussians wanted Hanover, and the French wanted to give it to them, but they had never been able to make a deal happen. After Austerlitz, everything had changed. Austria was devastated and occupied. Russia was humiliated and would not be a major force in Central Europe until new armies could be massed and organized. Napoleon was the only game in town. Even Queen Louise and her powerful anti-French faction at the Prussian court had to admit that it was now too dangerous to openly oppose Bonaparte. The country now had little choice but to finally accept France's overtures of friendship. With these impediments finally out of the way, it didn't take long for Haugwitz and Napoleon's diplomats to hammer out a deal. Hanover would finally be ceded to Prussia, and in return, France would receive three small enclaves of territory in western Germany and Switzerland, which were ruled by the King of Prussia but outside Prussia's borders. On paper, this was an incredible deal for the Prussians, far better than their weak diplomatic position deserved. They were trading away a small amount of mostly useless territory for a big piece of territory that would greatly strengthen their position relative to the other great powers. But Napoleon was not simply giving Hanover away. The true significance of this agreement could not be found in any clause or article, but in its implications. By agreeing to this territory swap, Prussia would be aligning herself with Napoleon, Remember, before it was seized by the French, Hanover had been ruled by the British king, George III. Britain and France were at war. King George had never recognized the legality of the French conquest. He certainly wasn't going to consent to the territory being annexed and integrated into Prussia. By accepting this deal, the Prussians were also implicitly turning against the British and accepting Napoleon's right to redraw the map of Europe as he saw fit. In fact, the Prussians were paying a steep price here. There were good reasons they had been so reluctant to accept this proposal before Austerlitz had forced their hand. The deal was also a slight against Austria. For centuries, the Holy Roman Emperors had guaranteed the integrity of the states of the empire. By trading territories within the empire with France, a foreign power from outside the empire, without consulting the Austrians, the Prussians were undercutting the emperor's authority. The Treaty of Schönbrunn, as this agreement would come to be known, was a severe blow to the legitimacy of the Holy Roman Empire. France and Prussia were still not formally allies, but it was now clear to all of Europe that Prussia had bent the knee to Napoleon. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. 
Download the new Bumble now. The Treaty of Schönbrunn was a major development, but it was practically a sideshow compared to the bigger foreign policy question facing Napoleon, what to do about the Austrians. Whenever a country is victorious in war, there is a natural desire to make the enemy pay at the negotiating table. People want to know that the lives, money, and all the other sacrifices of war had been for something. This was especially true in France during this era. Napoleon felt his legitimacy depended on military success. It was important for him to be able to show his people tangible accomplishments won on the battlefield. Historians have debated the extent to which this was actually true, but Napoleon certainly believed it, and he was the one calling the shots. There were also practical considerations. Austria was France's greatest historic rival, and had fought wars against France three times in 13 years. You could make a very good argument that it was in France's interests that Austria be weakened, so the next time they faced each other on the battlefield, which almost everyone believed was inevitable, the Habsburgs would be a little easier to defeat. So, Austria would lose out in the coming treaty, there was no question of that. However, just how much to make them pay was a matter of great concern. Diplomacy is a delicate business. There is a lot more to it than simply punishing one's enemies as harshly as possible. While it was certainly true that Austria was one of France's most bitter rivals, it was also one of the great powers. And for all its flaws, the system of the five competing great powers was the pillar upon which all of European geopolitics had rested for decades. If Napoleon punished Austria so hard that it lost its status as a great power, that pillar would suddenly be upset, and the whole edifice of European geopolitics could come crashing down. And if that happened, no one would be able to predict the outcome. Only one thing would be certain that there would be a lot more war and suffering before a new status quo could emerge. The French and the Austrians certainly didn't get along, but any honest French diplomat had to admit that the Habsburgs played an important role on the European stage. They were a check on the other nearby great powers, Russia and Prussia. If Austria was diminished, her neighbors would surely step into the void, and that would not necessarily be a positive development for France or anyone else for that matter. Habsburg power maintained order in most of Central and Southern Europe. For centuries, a strong Austria had been the main bulwark holding back the Ottoman Turks as they tried to advance further into Europe. So the French leadership was surprisingly divided on how to approach a new treaty with Austria. On one hand, there was the understandable impulse to punish the Austrians and ensure they were too weak to cause more problems for France, at least in the near future. But this had to be balanced against all the dangers that would be unleashed if Austria was weakened too much, and became unable to play her assigned roles in the European geopolitical system. Foreign Minister Talleyrand was widely considered the greatest foreign policy mind in France, possibly the whole world. Around this time, he warned Napoleon that a strong Habsburg Empire was, quote, indispensable to the future safety of the civilized world, end quote. And so, with all this in mind, the new Franco-Austrian treaty would be negotiated in the city of Pressburg, today Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia. 
We've seen in past episodes the way treaty talks could drag on for months in this era, but with France holding basically all the cards, there really was not a lot of negotiation going on. The Treaty of Pressburg was signed just three days after the diplomats arrived in the city. Amazingly, the Austrians actually did manage to talk the French down on one clause of the agreement. Napoleon had wanted Austria to pay an indemnity of 100 million francs, and the final treaty called for just 40 million. But in general, the Habsburgs had little choice but to accept whatever terms were offered. For starters, Austria would lose a lot of territory. The Habsburgs would give up all their lands in Italy and along the Adriatic coast. In modern terms, that's northeastern Italy, plus slices of Slovenia and Croatia. Most of this land would go to the Kingdom of Italy, a French puppet state based in Milan, which already ruled over most of the northern half of the peninsula. Historians usually date the Risorgimento, Italian unification, to the mid-19th century. But here we are at the end of 1805, and there is a united, centralized state calling itself Italy, ruling over the entire peninsula north of Rome. True, it wasn't all of Italy, and it only existed because of the meddling of outside powers, but this is all important prehistory to events that would occur a generation later. Italy had been an arena of competition between France and the Habsburgs for centuries, all the way back to the Renaissance. That era was now over. The Austrians had been totally ejected from the region, and would only be able to influence Italian politics from afar. Northern Italy was fully under French influence. Bavaria would be rewarded as well. The small Bavarian army had fought alongside the French for most of the war, and had performed relatively well. They even allowed most of their country, including their capital, to be occupied at the beginning of the conflict. They had paid a price for their alliance with France. Now it was only right that they shared in the rewards of victory. And of course, for Napoleon, this was about much more than honor. Strengthening Bavaria was a way to weaken their neighbors in Austria. Under the terms of the treaty, the Bavarians would annex the Austrian province of Tyrol, and a smaller Austrian territory known as Vorarlberg. Napoleon also rewarded some of his other German friends. We've discussed in past episodes how France expanded its influence in Germany after her victories in the last two wars. The states of Baden and Württemberg occupy most of the territory between France and Bavaria. During this period, they began to tilt away from the emperor in Vienna and towards the emperor in Paris. These small states hadn't played much of a direct role in the war certainly nothing big enough to deserve being rewarded with more territory. But Napoleon saw how France would benefit if her friends grew stronger, and how Austria would be weakened if there were more powerful states within the Holy Roman Empire, who had no need of the emperor's protection. And so, several small enclaves of Habsburg territory in western Germany were ceded to Baden and Württemberg. The rulers of Bavaria, Baden, and Württemberg would also get promotions in the aristocratic hierarchy. The electors of Bavaria and Württemberg would become kings, and the margrave of Baden would become a grand duke. 
To modern ears, the meaning of this change is probably not immediately obvious, but it would have been very clear in 1805. The old titles of Elector and Margrave had emphasized the ruler's connection with the empire. The new titles very much implied independence and sovereignty. The Holy Roman Empire was the main structure through which Austrian influence flowed into Germany. By undermining the empire, Napoleon was both weakening Austria and creating an opening for increased French influence. The Treaty of Pressburg included a lot of small, subtle attacks on the Holy Roman Empire. For one thing, the treaty conspicuously does not refer to the empire by its full legal name, only by a shorter euphemism, the German Confederation. For centuries, almost every treaty involving the Holy Roman Empire had included a clause affirming the previous treaties that governed the empire's affairs. The Treaty of Pressburg did not. This implied that the entire nature of the Holy Roman Empire, and perhaps its very existence, were open to revision. Perhaps most significantly, the treaty guaranteed full sovereignty for Bavaria, Baden, and Württemberg. That was the exact phrase used in the treaty, full sovereignty. This term is not defined in the treaty and could easily be read to imply total independence from the Holy Roman Empire, or at the very least, a completely different relationship to it. I realize all this diplomatic language might not make for the most exciting listening, but it is important. These little things, a few small provinces changing hands, the deliberate inclusion or exclusion of some esoteric legal phrase, These were the currency of Napoleonic diplomacy. This somewhat obscure treaty signified a great change. Austrian power would be greatly diminished. Not only were there these indirect attacks on the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor Francis II lost around 2.5 million subjects, and these were disproportionately from the wealthy and German-speaking parts of his domains that traditionally gave more than their share of tax revenue and recruits for the army. However, Austria did not go away empty-handed. That might sound strange, but remember there was that old principle of compensation, that any great power that lost territory in a treaty should be compensated by gains elsewhere. And so, Austria was allowed to annex the city of Salzburg, which was culturally and economically already well-integrated with Austria, but legally independent and sovereign, an independent state within the Holy Roman Empire, ruled by its archbishop. Fans of classical music might know that the Archbishop of Salzburg was one of the early patrons of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Austrian leaders had long dreamed of assuming direct control over Salzburg, After all, this was a very wealthy and well-developed chunk of territory right on their doorstep. But it was still nothing compared to what they lost. And even here, with this consolation prize to the Austrians, Napoleon had found yet another way to weaken the Holy Roman Empire. The emperor was supposed to be the protector of all the small states of the empire, and now here he was annexing one of those small states. By accepting this so-called compensation, Francis II was undermining his own authority as emperor. The war and the subsequent treaty had been devastating blows to the Habsburgs. 
Archduke Charles, one of the emperor's best generals, and his younger brother, wrote a letter to Francis II shortly after the treaty was signed. Charles was one of the few people who could get away with talking to the emperor plainly, without sugarcoating the truth, and on this occasion, he did not hold back. Quote, Austria faces a terrible crisis. Your majesty stands alone at the end of a short but horrible war. Your country is devastated, your treasury empty, the honor of your arms diminished, your reputation tarnished, and the prosperity of your subjects ruined for many years. End quote. And that was just the situation in Austria itself, without even touching on the more subtle damage done to the Holy Roman Empire. You might remember that Archduke Charles had been one of the loudest voices speaking against this war. He had warned his brother repeatedly that the Austrian government, and especially the Austrian military, were not ready. It must have been hard for him to resist saying, I told you so. Still, all things considered, it could have been much worse for Austria. They were totally within Napoleon's power. For example, if he'd really wanted to, he could have completely dismembered the Habsburg realms, demanded independence for large and wealthy holdings like Bohemia or Hungary. The treaty was a terrible blow to Austria, but not quite terrible enough to knock them out of the Great Power Club. Remember, the desire to punish the Habsburgs had to be balanced with the desire to maintain stability. The Habsburgs were badly hurt, but they would be back. Of course, this is a dangerous game to play in diplomacy, leaving your enemy diminished and humiliated, but still strong enough to rebuild their power, is a recipe for another war in the near future. The Treaty of Versailles of 1919 is the most obvious comparison, but history is full of such examples. Napoleon's approach to this treaty has been criticized as short-sighted, and you can probably see why. You can make a good argument that all the treaty really did was set the stage for the next war between France and Austria. But how else could Napoleon have balanced these contradictory missions of weakening the Habsburg threat while also keeping them strong enough to maintain stability? Perhaps he should have picked one or the other instead of trying to do both, but we can only guess whether a different approach would have been successful, or even possible. In any case, one important thing to understand about Napoleon's foreign policy is that he considered war inevitable. He was far more concerned with putting France in a good position for that eventuality than he was in actually building a lasting peace. And so, the Treaty of Pressburg was little more than a long-term ceasefire. The Austrians were left wanting revenge, and the French expected them to seek it at the first opportunity. Back in Bohemia, the Grande Armée was still camped around the city of Brune, getting some much-needed rest while the diplomats did their work. Without the enemy to distract them, Napoleon's marshals indulged in their favorite pastime, bickering and jockeying to get as much glory and credit as possible. This time, the main prima donna was Marshal Jean Lon, one of Napoleon's closest personal friends since the days of the First Italian Campaign. At Austerlitz, Lon's V Corps had held the left flank of the French army, and been involved in heavy fighting against an enemy of equal size for most of the battle, 
They had also borne the brunt of the Russian artillery fire, and suffered tremendous casualties. In Lon's view, he and his corps had taken on the least glorious but most vital task of the day, and hundreds of his men had been sacrificed in bitter fighting to enable the lopsided French success on other parts of the battlefield. But when he read the official report of the battle, his fifth corps was barely mentioned. Lon was so offended that he simply packed up and left for France, technically making him a deserter. The rest of the Grande Armée would begin to follow starting about a week after the battle, through Bohemia and Austria, through southern Germany, across the Rhine, and home at last. Many soldiers and officers were granted leave, but the army did not demobilize, nor did they return to their home depots, scattered throughout the French interior. Instead, they were ordered to new encampments along the Rhine. The European diplomatic situation was too unstable for Napoleon to risk letting down his guard. And of course, France was still at war with the rest of the coalition, including two of the great powers, Russia and Great Britain. And so, just as they had three years earlier along the Channel Coast, the Grande Armée settled into semi-permanent camps to await the return of war. No one expected it to be a long stay, and they would not be disappointed. We'll leave things there for now. Until next time, thanks for listening. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.